0: So stale in the air. Everybody's running scared. We used to be so carefree, used to be so happy, used to have
1: everything we need.
2: Welcome to Village Mentality, where melanated people are connected in spirit, love, and community. What's up, kings and queens, beautiful people everywhere? It's your girl, CK McGee, and I am your host. What's up, beautiful people? How's everyone doing? You know, I'm always praying that you all are doing as well as you can be. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Village Mentality. Now, if you did not have a chance to hear last week's episode, then I invite you to catch up on that and all previous episodes of Village Mentality on Spotify, Google Podcast, Breaker, or Radio Public. Now, every Wednesday night, At 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you are more than welcome to join me here in the village. As I talk about different topics that impact our BIPOC communities, I'll encourage self-care practices that can help to rejuvenate your spirit and soul so that you can continue to be the fantabulous kings and queens that you already are, as well as looking at all of those topics that are discussed here on the show through a mental health perspective. Now, without further ado, I do believe that it's time for me to take my first walk of the evening to my musical jukebox. Ladies and gentlemen, our first song for the evening was the lead single from his seventh studio album, Graceland, released By Warner Brothers Records in 1986. Now, it was written by the singer himself. Its lyrics follow an individual seemingly experiencing a midlife crisis. Its lyrics were partially inspired by his trip to South Africa and his experience with its culture. Now, it was released in September of 86 and this song became one of his biggest solo hits, reaching the top five in seven countries. The names in the song actually came from an incident that he experienced at a party. He went to that party with his then wife Peggy. Now, there was a French composer there, uh, and he's also a conductor by the name of Pierre Boulez. And you know, he's there at the party. He's hanging out. And he kept mistakenly referring to the singer-songwriter as Al and to his wife Peggy as Betty, which inspired him to write this song. Here's Paul Simon with You Can Call Me Al.
0: down the street he says why am I soft in the middle now why am I soft in the middle the rest of my life is so hard I need a photo opportunity I want a shot a redemption don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard bone digger bone digger dogs in the moonlight far away my well-lit door Mr. beer belly beer belly get these mutts away from me you know I don't find this stuff amusing anymore If you'll be my bodyguard, I can be your long lost pal. I can call you Betty, Betty, when you call me, you can call me out. If you will be my bodyguard, I can be all lost pal. I can call you Betty, and Betty, when you call
2: That was In the Closet by the King of Pop himself, Michael Jackson, rest in peace King. It was released on April 9th, 1992 as the third single from his eighth album, Dangerous. Now, the song was written and produced by Jackson and Mr. Teddy Riley, hmm Now, it became the album's third consecutive top 10 pop single reaching number six on the US billboard, Hot 100. It also became his second number one R&B single. Now the song re-entered the UK singles chart at number 20 in 2006, right? Now, typically the term in the closet refers to sexual orientation, but despite the song's suggestive name, Its lyrics do not allude to hidden sexual orientation, but rather a concealed relationship. You know, don't hide our love, woman to man, that kind of a thing. Now, the New York Times stated that only Jackson, (laughs) he'd be the only one who would use that for a title for a heterosexual love song. The song's female vocal was originally labeled as mystery girl but later it was revealed to be the voice of Princess Stephanie of Monaco. Hmm. Now you learn something every day, no matter how big or small, how about that? Well, Village, you know me, I like to take a little bit of time to talk about some things, whether it be about current events, entertainment, or something that is just on my mind. So why don't we get into my segment called, Let's Talk About It. On November 30th, 2021, a mass shooting occurred at Oxford High School in the Detroit Exurb, which is an area outside the typically denser suburban area of a metropolitan area that has an economic and commuting connection to the metro area. And it also has low housing density and growth, right? It was in the Oxford township, which is located in the state of Michigan. Now, Ethan Crumbly, 15-year-old sophomore, was arrested and charged as an adult with one count of terrorism causing death, four counts of first-degree murder, seven counts of assault with intent to murder, and 12 counts of possession of a firearm. He fired at least 30 rounds from a semi-automatic weapon, 9mm. And there was a point in which a video shows his attempt to coax some of the students who had barricaded themselves in a classroom for their own safety by pretending to be an officer. But fortunately, the students were able to discern that his language was not that of an officer, recognizing that it was the shooter himself. Now, since then, since this occurred, the district superintendent, Tim Throne, requested an independent investigation into the incident, which happens to be the deadliest school shooting at a UK through 12 campus since May of 2018. Now, Ethan's lawyer entered a not guilty plea during his arraignment last week. And once again, I just want you guys to think about the fact that he was taken into custody without being shot multiple times. You know, because he was a threat or anything like that, you know, I mean, responding officers, they didn't fear for their lives. Nope. Nothing at all like that. Nothing at all. And this was after he just killed four students Madison Baldwin, 17 years old, Tate Myrie, 16, Hannah Saint Juliana. 14, and Justin Schilling, 17. Not even after he did that, and then injured others, eight others, they didn't fear for their lives, and they were able to take him into custody. He was unharmed, because they didn't fear for their lives. I just want y'all to think about that. Now... Tim Throne, the uh, district superintendent, he requested the investigation into this incident because he wanted there to be transparency. He wanted no stone to be left unturned. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, here we go. So here you have it the day before the shooting, which would be Monday, the beginning of a brand new week. In fact, the Monday after Thanksgiving, just to put it into context for you all, right? On Monday, a teacher saw the suspect looking at photos of ammunition on his cell phone during class, which prompted a meeting with a counselor and another staff member. During that discussion, the student told them that he and his mother had recently gone to a shooting range and that shooting sports are a family hobby. Okay, that's what was written in the letter. Now, the school then attempted to reach the student's mother that day, Monday, but didn't hear back until the following day when his parents at that time confirmed his story. Okay, so you see a kid in class on their phone, which first of all, just that alone, hello, what are you doing on your phone if you're in class? What is this, homeroom? Is it a free period? What's, What's going on here? But you notice that he's on his phone and he's looking at ammunition. Hmm. Now you're in a school. Hmm. And you know, just like I do, there is such things, unfortunately, in this country where mass shootings can take place. Hmm. But yet you call a meeting. Okay, but let's hear what else happened after that. So after the school officials were able to reach out to Jennifer Crumbly, his mother, regarding her son searching the web for ammunition, she texts him and says, haha, LOL, <laughs> funny, haha. I'm not mad at you, but you have to learn, little buster. You have to learn, little buddy, not to get caught, okay? That's according to prosecutors. You have to learn how not to get caught. He's 15 years old. Look at what he's learning at home. That's just great. And so here it is the next day, Tuesday, the morning of the shooting. Okay, Tuesday morning, day of the shooting. A teacher alerts a school counselor and the dean of students to quote unquote concerning drawings and written statements that the student had created, according to the letter. So he was quote unquote, immediately removed from the classroom and taken to a guidance counselor's office. Yeah, we're going to a guidance counselor for someone who's drawing pictures that are disturbing. And the day before who was found, you know, looking for ammo on their phone a guidance counselor I mean unless guidance counselors mean something different these days than when I was going to school I just find that interesting that you're going to the guidance counselor okay let's keep going the student told the counselor that quote the drawing was part of a video game that he was designing and informed the counselors that he planned to pursue video game design as a career unquote okay village okay listen like like I said I I mean uh, it's just me here right but I have to ask this question because I know it's been a minute since I was in school it's been a while since I've been in school okay but get me right if I'm wrong will you Um, But aren't the guidance counselors the people that you talk to about, like, your career choices and your options? Um, Maybe they might help you determine, you know, the schools that you might want to get into if you're able to get into those schools. Isn't that what a guidance counselor is? Or has that role changed? Because that's what I thought a guidance counselor was, right? So exactly how is it that a guidance counselor is talking to a child that... As so many red flags, I can't even see straight. Like, I still don't understand it, okay? Because it just seems to me that when he made this announcement about the whole career and video, you know, design, game design, that that was like the first time the guidance counselor was hearing about that, right? It wasn't like the guidance counselor said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because we had a, a, a meeting a couple months ago and, um, you know, I told him what kind of classes he needs to focus on to better prepare him for that kind of career. I mean, unless they just haven't disclosed that to us at this time, but I'm just saying, maybe it's just me. Now, following that discussion, the student stayed in the office for an hour and a half as school staff called his parents again. Hmm. And they waited for them to arrive at the school. While waiting, the student was concerned about missing his homework assignments really what student is concerned about that that's interesting and he requested his science homework of all kinds of homework you can have okay which he you know he received they got it they they, they brought it to him and and that's what he worked on while he was in the office waiting now at no time At no time did the counselors believe that the student might harm others or himself based on his behavior. Really? Now, wait a second. Based on his behavior. hmm, He was searching the web for ammunition the day before. And now there are pics with blood in them, you know, And um, I believe that one account of this story says that he may have written a little special message on the pig that, I don't know, said something to the effect of the world is dead, right? So you're telling me that didn't cause anyone any kind of concern that he might harm himself or others, given the fact that there were like people in that picture with the blood, and no? Okay, I'm I'm overreacting, obviously. Okay, let me stop cuz I'm overreacting. Sure, sure. Now, upon the parents' arrival and school counselors, you know, they they sat there and they asked specific probing questions, okay, about Ethan's potential for self-harm or his intent to want to harm others. Now, the answers that he provided, quote led counselors to again conclude that he did not intend on committing either self-harm or harm to others, unquote. So you're telling me that not one counselor thought it was pertinent to ask him what the meaning behind the pics were? I mean, I know you sat here and you talked about you know, developing a video game. But even with that, really, what's the purpose of your video game? What's the end game? What's the result? What is it that you're hoping to have the player or the user of this game accomplish? And while you're at it, can you please explain to me exactly what this means here, okay? Because, um, you know, people, let's be real. If you are playing a video game like, like that, you know, there's such thing as a reset button, but you can't do that when you actually take people's lives in real life, there is no reset button. So can you explain to me what this picture means? Did anybody ask that question? I mean, I know I would have. Now, the school counselors who were not concerned, remember, they weren't concerned based on his behavior and the probing questions that they asked, but yet they told the parents that they must seek counseling for their son within 48 hours. They even had a deadline. Wait a second. What? Wait, wait. Why are you telling them that they need to go and get counseling and do it in 48 hours or else we're going to contact the Child Protective Services? But wait a minute. You weren't concerned, right? His behavior and his demeanor were such that you really didn't believe that there was any harm. Being done, but now you're telling the parents that they need to go and get a counselor and they need to do so quick and in a hurry. I'm confused. I just want to know like what I'm missing because I'm probably I'm sure I'm missing something. I'm sure I am. I, I'm just gonna say it I'm missing something. Now, when they ask the parents to take their child home, can you just take Ethan home? You know, probably better if he just goes home, right? For the rest of the day, the parent said, absolutely not. We ain't going to take him home. We got to get back to work. And I'm going to put work in quotes, okay? We, we got to get back to work. So he's going to stay right here, all right? It'll be your problem for the rest of the day. Okay, okay. Go team. Now, I mean, after all, he didn't have any prior disciplinary actions on his record. The school council decided, all right, well, I guess we'll just let him go back to his class. We don't want to send him home where there's nobody there or maybe sending him home where there is someone there, but he shouldn't be in that environment. I mean, you know what I'm saying? However you want to look at it. While we understand the decision, they say, that we made has caused anger, confusion, and prompted understandable questioning, right? And also the death of children and harm to others. Don't forget that part. The counselors made a judgment based on their professional training and clinical experience and did not have all the facts that we now know. Well, guess what? beautiful people. I don't have all the facts either, but the facts that I've been able to obtain would have caused red alerts to go off in my mind. And I think that perhaps it would have um, prompted a different response. Okay. Would have prompted a different response than what happened. And then, the cherry on top is that the decision to send the student back to class was not shared with the principal or the assistant principal okay so everybody's just kind of just i don't know just doing their own thing there was no village here there was no village Okay, you know, see, when you're a part of a village, you operate in your strengths. You come together and you take care of whatever the situation is so that we can have a successful and effective outcome. Right. That's what it is to be in a village. That was no village. That was no village at all. Now, imagine, if you will, the school drills that happen around the country as a result of a school shooting such as this. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the reason, and the only reason really, that the shooter, Ethan Crumbly, was not able to gain access to one single classroom. He started firing a gun in between periods as students were going from one class to another. You remember back in the days when you were in school, right? Junior high school, high school, how you had to travel throughout the halls to get to where you had to go. Imagine, as you're doing that, somebody starts shooting. An initial review of videos of the shooting shows that staff and students that their response to the shooter was efficient, exemplary, and definitely prevented further deaths and injuries. All right. And this, of course, was all according to the investigation that was requested by the district school superintendent. Now, the one thing that my mother and I had discussed was whether or not we felt or we believed I should say that the parents be held accountable for the actions of their child and wouldn't you know it someone else thought that they should be too and after hours of searching for them and eventually finding them in a warehouse in Detroit they were both charged with what involuntary manslaughter to which they have already pled not guilty. Okay, I mean, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, my God, it's not fair. I don't think you should. You know, that charge seems kind of like outlandish. You can't be with your child 24-7. You can't know what they're going to do. Right, right. No, you can't know what they're going to do at all hours of the day. But you could participate. You could play a part, a role in what they end up doing because perhaps you could be, oh, I don't know, um, giving them a responsibility that they're not yet mature enough to handle. Could, Could that be something that as a parent, you might want to consider a little bit more, oh, I don't know, stringently because of the effects that it can have on others as a result of you not doing that? Now, I don't know if I knew at the time I was talking to my mom what charge it should be, but I definitely believe to this very moment as I'm talking to you, that they are definitely responsible for his actions. They are. Whatever charge you wanna call it, they are responsible. And it's not, it, to me, it's like time for parents to understand the connection between what they do or don't do and what their child does and how there's a direct link Whether you're with your child 24 hours a day or not, you are the one responsible for shaping them in this moment in time in their life with your beliefs, whatever they may be, okay? And if you are someone who is going to put that type of responsibility into the hands of a child that's not mature enough to handle it, you're running the risk, you're taking the risk that something bad just might happen. And you know what? He might not have had to even make it to school for what happened to have occurred. He could have hurt himself at home. Why are you so careless and so free to go and, and and go to the shooting range and go do this and go do that, just because you might show your child what a gun looks like, just because you might talk to them about how to load it and unload it for those people out there who believe that they should be able to do this. What is telling you, though, that they're old enough or mature enough to handle that responsibility when in some parts of the country they're not even trusted to be at home by themselves at that age. In some parts of the country, some states, I don't know if it's every state, but I know when I was 15, I had to ask my mom to sign working papers so that I could work. Um, When I wanted to go get my permit, I got my permit at 15. Guess what? My mom or a licensed driver had to be with me when I drove and the hours in which I could drive, the hours in which I could work were limited. Why? Because I was 15. Why am I walking around with a gun at 15? Yes, yes, yes. Y'all can still think if you want, but yes, CK says that she believes these parents are responsible and it's about time now that parents start taking responsibility and start being held accountable for what their children are doing because apparently you are making some judgment calls that are not faring out well. Am I mad? Am I upset? You damn Skippy I am. Innocent children lost their lives because you think it's cool to go purchase a gun, give it to your son, and have him practicing at the range. And then losing track of said gun that, well, we'll talk about that as we move on. We'll talk about that. But speaking of white immunity, ding, 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 remember that word? Again, if you missed last week's episode, check it out and you'll understand the use of that term. They were eventually taken into custody from the warehouse. No one was concerned. Okay, That they didn't show up at all for their arraignment last week. That they were on the run. That they were found in an empty warehouse. Nobody worried about a Bonnie and Clyde-like reaction. Village, if that's not the benefit of the doubt, (laughs) like the former president of Spelman College, Dr. Beverly Tatum, referred to in my discussion last week, I don't know what is, beautiful people. Now, the prosecutors allege that James and Jennifer Grumley allowed their son, quote unquote, free access to the gun used in the shooting. But one of the parents' attorneys by the name of Sharon Smith said the gun was locked. So apparently the defense begs to differ that Ethan had, quote unquote, free access to the gun and stated that there was far more going on than the court has been made aware of. Is that right? Is that right? Now, I don't know about you, ladies and gentlemen, whoever has kids out there, you know, that are in school, but I'll go ahead and just ask this question. Um, Do your children come home and share with you what goes on at class, what goes on in school, at lunch, you know, if they were hanging out with their friends or you know if they're involved in extracurricular activities like sports or you know drama class or do they do they talk to you about what goes on or do you inquire about their day because i'm just wondering you know i've been just thinking doing that again did ethan come home and talk to them about any issues that were happening at school because you know there are some accounts that mention bullying right and we have recognized within these last couple of years just how serious bullying can be in-person bullying cyber bullying right sometimes it has led to the child being bullied to take their own life right suicidal ideation it's a very harmful event that I'm still not satisfied is being handled correctly at school but did he come home and say anything at all to his parents, alert them to any kind of, I don't know, treatment or behavior that he was encountering at school where he felt, you know, unsafe? I'm just putting it out there. I'm not saying I know the answer. I'm just asking. Wouldn't it seem reasonable though? To think about that though, it would seem reasonable to ask yourself that question. Cause I'm just wondering if he did, is that why certain actions were taken? You know, like James Crumbly buying the gun that his son allegedly used in the shooting, a 9 millimeter Sig Sawyer. Is that the way it's pronounced? I don't know anything about guns, people. I apologize. But an SP-2022 semi-automatic pistol. And then four days later, you know, it's used in the shooting. But getting back to what the defense said about the gun being locked, that's interesting, It's interesting that, you know, he wasn't granted free access to the gun because it was locked. So then tell me how then, shortly after, Ethan Crumbly posted a picture of said gun on an Instagram account and captioned it, Just got my new beauty today. Oh joy. Oh rapture. Right? And he even says, Sig Sawyer 9mm. And, oh, he added heart emojis. Oh, he was in love. He wanted the world to know it. Now, Jennifer Crumbly, she also posted about the gun that he didn't have free access to that was locked up and said on social media, calling it his new Christmas present. Yeah you you mean the gun that he didn't have free access to was locked up that gun that's not the same gun that you and he took to the shooting ring is it no no it's not the gun that could have possibly been in the backpack that y'all never checked at school not that gun no i mean i'm just listen i'm just asking questions i don't have all the answers i really don't i just wanted to ask the questions at least you know what i'm saying So it looks like both parents, James and Jennifer, um, bail was set at $500,000 each. Mm -hmm. Well, Village, we'll just have to see how things turn out. And I will be sure to keep you posted. Now, Village did you all ever watch the show Empire okay 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 I have to admit that I did but there did come a time where I just could not endure the foolishness between Cookie and Lucia's line anymore and I stopped like cold turkey stop watching the series okay I couldn't even stand to, to, to watch it to see how it was ending. I think I remembered that it was supposed to be like the series finale or what have you. I couldn't even I couldn't even hang in there. As long as I had watched it, it was like, I just got to a point where I was like, no mas, no more. I couldn't take it. So I mean, that's what happens when you start to grow, right? You start to evolve out of those things that you used to be like all crazy about. Yeah. So. Even though I didn't see it end and I stopped cold turkey, something tells me that I'll be just fine. I'll be just fine. Now, as the Chicago Tribune reports it, it was colder than penguin's feet. (laughs) Now, I laugh, not necessarily because that was hysterical, but because I have a brother who would say something just like that, okay? Now, this was the night And bear with me with these names okay i'm gonna do my best but this was the night that abimbola asandario and his brother gathered their bleach ski mask and headed downtown you know to downtown chicago waiting to give a fake beating to actor jesse smollett all right now the plan for the hoax attack had been carefully laid out days earlier when Smollett revealed that he was upset that the folks at Empire weren't taking a threatening letter that he received more seriously, okay? So shortly before 2 a.m. on January 29th, 2019, January 29th, 2019, the brothers walked around Streeterville in the cold for a while, killing time until Smollett showed up at the prescribed location Near his apartment building, Asandario was telling the jury. Now, as soon as they saw the actor, they sprang into action. He said, "Hey, aren't you that Empire homophobic slur?" And I guess there were some other words that were said. And his brother said, "This is MAGA country." That's what the testifying. That's what the testimony said, All right? <laughs> so. He says, that's when I proceeded to punch him in the face. We tussled on the ground. I threw him to the ground. I bruised up his face. And then I saw some car lights and we ran away, right? But later on that afternoon, Sandario sent a text and he was instructed to do so where he was extending his condolences, which I find a a very um, interesting word, condolences. See, I'm very much about words, okay? And when I think about condolences, it's like, it's about death. Not because you got your butt whooped. Like, I, I okay, that's just me again, sorry. But anyway, he was supposed to make it look like, oh my God, dude, what happened to you? No, say it ain't so. Oh my, oh, I'm, I'm praying for your speedy recovery that's what that was supposed to be all about right so (laughs) while he is testifying you know on behalf of the the prosecution the defense of course is working very hard to paint the brothers as criminals and opportunistic liars perhaps motivated by homophobia now Asandario's long-awaited testimony which continued into the evening you know on the first day of the trial is a crucial part of the case against Smollett because the brother's cooperation with police, it actually turned the actor from a victim of a racist and homophobic attack into a suspected hoaxer. So now Smollett now faces felony charges of lying to police about the attack. Now, of course, there were all kinds of things that were brought up during the trial and while the trial is going on, right? But you all can read about those things at your convenience. I just can't. Y'all can read about those things if you want to know at your convenience. But here's the thing that gets me, Village. He is accused of setting up this hoax, right? And the reason they say that Jesse set up this hoax was because he wanted to gain some favor. He wanted to oh, um, I don't know, improve his status at Empire, you know? He wanted to be taken seriously, dang it. You know, and and after, after being punched in the face, hustling on the ground, having bleach poured at him, and then having two black men yell at him, this is MAGA country. After all of that, after all is said and done, the damn show was canceled. I mean, I mean, to add insult to injury, the the show was canceled, okay? I suspect that this would be a good time for Alanis Morissette to tell us just how ironic this really is. So there's an organization, Kings and Queens, called the Canadian Equality Consulting Team. And they are bringing awareness to gender-based violence. Now, violence, um, it's an annual international campaign that runs starting from November 25th, which is actually the International Day to End Violence Against Women, to December 10th. So they invite individuals and organizations all around the world to call for the prevention and elimination of violence against women and girls. So, you know, you can follow them on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter because they're sharing ways that everyone can take action against these gender-based violence that, you know, that happens uh, each day. And it's a, a 16 day campaign. So like I said, from November uh, 25th to December 10th. So that's until Friday. But it doesn't have to be obviously throughout just those 16 days. This is something that we need to look to, you know, every single day. Um, so it's not limited to those days. It's just that that is a specific uh, campaign that Canada does um, to um, bring awareness to this very serious issue. So it's incredibly important because approximately every six days, a woman in Canada alone is killed by her intimate partner. Violence against women, it costs taxpayers and the government billions of dollars every year. And Canadians collectively spend $7.4 billion to deal with the aftermath of spousal violence alone. Now violence against women has exponentially increased during COVID-19 and we can recall here in the States, right? That we we were hearing that there was a increase in domestic violence here in the United States. I mean, picture it, come on. You have a family, you have a husband, wife, life partners, whatever your connection is to whomever it is you live with. I, I, no judgment from me, but I don't really know anybody, at least not in my orbit. (laughs) I don't know anybody who as much as you love your man, as much as you love your lady that you want to be up under them 24 7 365 days a year like I, I just I don't know anybody personally like that and in fact I'm not like that I don't need to be up under somebody and I don't need them to be up under me I'm perfectly fine you know And I think that we need um, opportunity, right? To be our individual selves, our friends, you know, what we do. So everybody goes to work or, you know, you might go to school or whatever it it is. But you have that period of time away from each other, right? And I don't know. Don't you like the idea of coming home later on? Hey, what's up, baby? How you doing? How was your day? Like, tell me everything. What happened? Like, don't you... Wouldn't you like to do that more so than look around and every time or everywhere you look there, that person is like you don't have any peace, no, no space, no alone time. Yeah. So I think that there was a lot of frustration that was building up during this global pandemic in which we were all required to stay in our houses for the safety of ourselves and each other. But anyway, learn what it is that you can do to help. You can visit Canadian Women's Foundation Violence Prevention Resources, okay? And remember that you are no one's doormat. You are no one's punching bag. If you or someone you know is experiencing gender-based violence, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Now, when I checked today, chat services and texting was down. And so they are encouraging you to actually call to speak to an advocate if you need to, right? Now the number is 1-800-799-7233 or 1-800-799-SAFE, S as in Sam, A as in Apple, F as in Frank, E as in England. It is free and it is confidential and it's available 24-7. Now this next song, Beautiful People, was from her self-titled debut album, which was released in 1994. It's a mid-tempo track that features a thunderous beat, and it describes a flirt with a boy who the singer wants to convince of her loveliness. It received a positive reaction by contemporary music critics. Its impact on the charts was comparatively large for a debut single. Now, while it's spent 4 weeks on top of the US Billboard Hot R&B Singles chart it reached number 6 on the Billboard Hot 100 and the top 20 in Australia and New Zealand the day mate now in 1995 a hip hop remix with new lyrics from female rappers MC Light, Queen Latifah and Yo-Yo came on out and here they all are with Brandy And uh, when we come back, I'm going to get into today's topic because just like these queens, I want to be down too. I get exotic with the melodic tune I get hypnotic with the moon But you got to put me down soon I
1: flip a side show if you come my way down and around Even sideways I'm about as ready As the light can get We can go all out I ain't afraid of the sweat But yet I bet you got the techniques To freak a girl inside out What's that all about? Can I have some of that? You gotta put me on Word around town Is your nine men strong? I wanna be put on In the worst way Since the first day I think it was the Thursday You be that brother That I wanna sink my teeth in Make me wanna ask I like the way you be with all that personality but I got flavor too you need to get with really me Ago just a pimp clothes, every day. New clothes, look at the cut coupons. Mm-hmm. Oh, on freak out the heat, so bluffy. Because it's more than 20 buckets drunk it. Kinda rich now. with pockets looking straight. Slam the D's on the benzo pancake by the gate. Mom's looking straight with her half. She got great lounging in her new home. That's about to same. Only your core mail won't tell. You can get it when you own it, even though you got chicks all up on it. Woo. Don't matter, cause brother, you fly. I can't lie. I've been macking, daddy from the corner Ron. of my eye. Now, yeah. baby, bring it on. Don't be frontin' on your baby boo. All I wanna know is what's up with you, how can I get with you? Seems like you gotta hold on me, it must be voodoo, cause baby I want you. About So big, uh-huh. about so small, yeah. about this length, uh-huh. about this width, uh-huh. about this flow, Bur- about this uh-huh. gift. Yeah. Instinct me and me, right up your alleyway. Skip the moet let's chill with some Alice.
3: Enough
1: stress in our day. Let me massage your mind as my mental starts to play. A ghetto sauce, you are, and I'll be your sexual chocolate bar. And I gotta keep strong for the course, and you gotta keep. Strong for the tours, brother man and me, damn the family. What else could we be with? No one understands us but we. You were the first most detained. Uh, big teeth, I'm out.
2: Hey, Village. So in today's topic, I would like to talk with you about restorative justice. Have you ever heard of it? Because personally, I can honestly say that I had never heard of it until I saw a political analyst and our brother, Van Jones, his show on CNN called The Redemption Project. And what it does is it takes viewers in the room as offenders come face to face with those impacted by their violent crimes as part of the restorative justice process. Now, let me tell y'all, I'm not afraid to admit it. I must have shed some tears during each and every episode that I have ever watched of The Redemption Project because it's very moving. I'm telling you, these are people who have committed the most vicious crimes against someone who was your loved one. And the capacity that we possess inside of us to forgive is so amazing, it's beautiful, that it just brought me to tears to see it at work. So what is restorative justice exactly? Okay, well, the idea of restorative justice seeks to heal the harm caused by crime. So instead of focusing on retribution, it focuses on rehabilitation. At its core, it is a process that offers both the victims and those who caused the harm an opportunity to seek answers and accountability so that they can begin to repair the damage that was caused by the crime. Now, Van Jones has said, quote, our criminal justice system is built to inflict pain. Here's how we heal it, unquote. And he, of course, was referring to his project. So one thing, beautiful people, that I've been discovering since I started this show, Village Mentality, is that there is more than one way to see things. And when we think about restorative justice, it's not just simply confined within the four walls of our criminal justice system, but it, in fact, extends beyond that. And I'd like to take a look at how restorative justice is utilized by teachers and school administrators. Now, I do not know about you, but when I was in school, if there um, let me see, when I was in school, if um, if there was something that you did right that was completely out of order, then you were punished for it. You either received in school, or out-of-school suspension, right? I think if you were in school, it was called detention and then out-of-school suspension, something like that. Um, but if it was in-school detention, then you know there was a room that was dedicated to carrying out this so-called punishment and you stayed there all day long. You were separated from your class or any other activities that you would otherwise be engaged in. And the amount of time that you spent there was based on what it was that you did wrong, right? So I'm sure that you can imagine if you have received out of school suspension, um, then the so-called offense was a lot more severe. And in some instances may even lead to expulsion, okay? So there was like a, a natural progression, if you will. I was in place when I was in school, but that was a long, long time ago. So I don't know what it's like now, but from a teacher's point of view, you know, they may be wondering what is the alternative to this, you know, traditional discipline and whether or not it can work. That is where restorative justice comes in. Now, most schools, they use punitive discipline systems. You break a rule and you're punished with detention or even suspension. But these systems can interrupt a student's education and lead to further bad behavior. And they also do not provide kids with any skills for working through issues with others. So that's why some schools are taking a look at restorative justice instead. Now, I don't know about you, kings and queens, but I am a part visual and part tactile type of a learner, which means I need to see what you're talking about and then I need to do it so that I get the feel of it. That's how I learn. Which, by the way, is one thing that's always important to know when you're going to teach somebody something new, right? To determine what kind of learner they are so that you can be more successful in teaching and they successful in learning, right? You're setting everybody up for success when you um, understand that. So with that in mind, I invite you to visualize with me a tale of two schools, all right? Can you see the school in your mind? A tale of two schools. Now we're first going to talk about the school that has the zero tolerance education system. All right. This is zero tolerance education system. So imagine that on a daily basis, students, including your student, which is your son or daughter, both, they are greeted by metal detectors and they are searched by police. Now, do you like the idea of your child being patted down each day at school? Like they're a bunch of criminals. Is that, that good with you? You good with that? Or how about when your son or daughter arrives late to class, the teacher scolds them in front of the entire class, calls them out in front of the whole class, And when your child who's embarrassed, a duh, talks back to the teacher, they are then given detention. Listen, when I think about me in school, that would have been me. I would have been in detention that day. I I can own it. I'll take accountability. (laughs) Now, next thing you know, your child ends up getting into an altercation with another student in the cafeteria. This kid is not having a good day, are they? Huh? They're not having a good day and a school police officer detains and then arrests both students. Really? Wow. Now, later that afternoon, your son or daughter is being held in a juvenile detention facility and they have been there all afternoon. Now they have an arrest record and they are facing suspension. Now, let me be clear to all my parents out there who may be listening. When we're talking about a juvenile detention facility, we are talking about a secure facility operated by local authorities or the state. According to the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, in all states, secure detention space is primarily used for temporarily holding juveniles, while they await adjudication, disposition, or placement elsewhere. Hmm, now I'm sure that you heard clearly the example of what they consider to be traditional justice in school, where there is a zero tolerance education system. And if I'm being honest, I'm more inclined to believe that this kind of justice exists more so with inner city students, you know, students of color who, unlike their white counterparts, may not be given what? Come on, we talked about this last week, people. If you said the benefit of the doubt, not only are you correct, but that means that you were paying attention. Yes, I am inclined to think metal detectors patting people down you get into an altercation you might have just been pushing and shoving, but suddenly you've been like arrested and you're in a juvie hall really all right Whew. so now you had that in your minds right okay now let's now talk about a different approach shall we Here is an example of what a restorative practice-based education system looks like, okay? So as Sophia in the Golden Girls would say, picture it. Your child arrives at school. Both teachers and administrators welcome them and their fellow students as they enter the building. The sun is shining. There's a rainbow. Oh, I'm sorry. That's not a part of the example. Um, But your child ends up being late for their first period class. And after class, their teacher speaks with them in order to understand why they were late to class. Well, thank you for not calling me out in front of my homies, okay? Embarrassing me. I appreciate you um, having some candor and just controlling yourself, at least until after class, to talk to me privately. Thank you. But we have to set up a meeting with their school counselor. Now, if you're setting up a meeting with a school counselor, I'm thinking that maybe this has happened more than once. It can't just be that this happened one time and now I need to send you to your counselor, okay? Because I'm thinking the fact that I've spoken to you, then that should be like the first step. Would you agree or not? Uh, Okay. Now, as they walk to the cafeteria, your son or daughter that is, they end up getting into an altercation with another student. I mean, really, they're still having a rough day, even in this model. Okay. Now, student peer mediators, that excites me. Student peer mediators, mm, because I would love to know that such an option exists in school today. And if not, in the future, I'm coming for you because it should exist in every school. There should be some student peer mediators. There should be, uh, some kind of a therapist. Somebody should be on site and not just when, uh, uh, there's a mass shooting every day. There should be somebody there. and support staff. They all intervene, right? And they have both students sit down together and they all work to deescalate the situation. There's another beautiful word deescalate. Now, Later on in the day, your child and the student that they fought with agree to help clean up the cafeteria together during a free period. Nice. Now, and more importantly, a meeting is called with you, your parents, the counselor. Okay, everybody is all in the room together, right? So that we can resolve a problem which we find out actually. Begin at home. Now, how many of you were thinking during this example that it wasn't just necessarily about school, okay? And I think that it's really important to say that a lot of times adults forget to see that children are little people who like them have thoughts and feelings, and they too can have difficulty navigating their way through life. Children are easily dismissed because they're just seen as kids. But there are a lot of things that children go through and parents have a tendency to not think about how the things that they're dealing with, like homelessness or instable housing as a food insecurity, substance abuse, how it can impact them too. Now, if you as an adult are having a hard time dealing with these things, how, pray tell in the world, do you expect that your children can deal with it? Right. And there may be things that they're dealing with that you're not even aware of. Bullying, bullying. Unfortunately, it could be molestation. Okay. Um, they could be, um, I don't know, having questions about you know, their gender, their sexuality. There's a lot of things that can be going on in your child's mind that you're not even aware of. And they might be struggling with mental health. Perhaps they're depressed or anxious. These are things that they might be keeping from you, you know, because they don't want to bother you. They see maybe mommy and daddy is busy and they don't want to be a problem. They don't want to complain. But meanwhile, they're holding all this stuff in their little bodies, in their minds, and they have no support to deal with those things right and that's a lot that's pretty heavy for a kid and so you're not aware of it as a parent and they end up carrying that all to school and it affects their ability to participate in class and other activities your child all of a sudden starts acting out you know if your child was you know usually seen as one way calm and quiet now they're acting out more than likely to see that kind of change in their personality, you know, that's something that you need to like be aware of. Or if your child previously was outgoing, a people person, but suddenly now they're quiet. Those are the kind of things that you gotta pay attention to, you need to pick up on. Now restorative justice is a theory of justice that focuses on mediation and agreement rather than punishment. So offenders, they have to accept responsibility. They have to be willing to accept that responsibility for the harm that they've caused and be willing to make restitution with the victims. Now, indigenous people are indigenous brothers and sisters from the Maori, okay? And I hope I pronounced that correctly. I mean, no disrespect if I did. They have used the system of restorative justice successfully in their communities for generations, right? Now, in recent years, various countries have tried to practice in an effort to make their criminal justice systems more effective. This led to the exploration of restorative justice in their schools, especially those with high rates of student misbehavior. So in California, the Oakland Unified School District began using this program at a failing middle grade school back in 2006. Within three years, that pilot school that used this program saw an 87% decrease in suspension with a corresponding decrease in violence. The practice was so successful that by 2011, Oakland Unified School District, they made restorative justice the new model for handling their disciplinary problems, right? But so let's talk about what some of the basic practices of restorative justice is, right? It's about building relationships. We're striving to be respectful to all people involved. It provides opportunity for equitable dialogue and participatory decision making, giving you a choice, right? It involves all relevant stakeholders, everybody involved, the person that caused the harm, the person that was harmed, the parents of all teachers, counselor. It addresses harms, it addresses needs, obligations, and and the causes of conflict and harm. It encourages everyone to take responsibility where where they need to, right? When you teach your children at a young age to be accountable for their actions, they grow up to be adults who are accountable for their actions. See how that works? When what you need to remember is that <clears throat> if crime hurts, then justice heal. And the focus is on repairing harm. If it has recurred. excuse me, occurred. Nothing about us without us, meaning that those impacted should always feel welcome and safe to speak and participate. Also, there is simply no substitute for the personal. So building respectful relationships is foundational and it's an outcome of any process. Knowing that this can work and that I can live with it. It's an agreement that is made by consensus, right? And then I'm willing to do this. Participation is voluntary. Nobody's forced into it. Everyone volunteers, okay? Now, I'm thinking that these next seven questions that I'm about to go over with you can be helpful for a teacher or even a parent in de escalating a situation at home between, you know, at school between two students. But at home, you know, it could be for parents that might have, you know, more than one child, of course, who is quarreling, um, who's having some difficulties between one another from time to time, right? So, what you want to do is get right to the heart of the matter. What happened? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how did it happen? Right, right. And what part did you play in it? To the one child? uh huh. And then of course you wanna ask that to the other. And then to the one student or child that was hurt, how were you affected by what was done to you? Okay.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: And who else asking the child that has committed the harm, who else was affected by what you, besides this person that you hurt, who else do you think is affected by what you did? The fact that you hit that person or you pushed them or what have you. Do you think that maybe their parents might be harmed, right? Do you think that maybe other students could be harmed because they see the way you're treating this student, right? That kind of a thing. Getting getting them essentially to see the bigger picture, to understand the ramifications of their actions, Right. Now, what can you do to repair the harm? Hear what that child, that student has to say. You know, uh, it's interesting to see how a child's mind works, what they're thinking of, and they might surprise you, right? And then lastly, what do you need to, what do you need to do to make it right? How can you make this better? What do you think needs to happen to make this better, to make this up to your sister, to make this up to your brother or students at school? Now, one of the teachers, one of the first teachers, actually, to use restorative justice in the classroom was Roxanne Blason, and she's a teacher from Fresno, California, and she does offer us a real-world, you know, school or classroom example of how restorative justice works in her school. Now, first of all, she worked with her students to write what they call a respect agreement. That's cool. I can dig it. Now together, they worked to determine how they would treat each other to create a positive classroom community. If a student violated that agreement, she would remind them of the agreement and she would ask them if they still wanted to honor it. Now, 90% of the time the student involved did and the problem ended there. But if the problem continued, she would work together with the student to find a solution. It is important to say to the student or to the child, you know, that could be at home, here's the problem. Now, what do you think that we can do to fix it? She says, the message that you are sending to the child is that I'm not against you, right? I am for you and I want you to succeed. So here's the example that she gives us of something that actually happened in her um, classroom. So two of her eighth grade boys, they broke a paper towel dispenser in the bathroom. Now at first, no one wanted to admit responsibility. Playson told them, listen, we have a restorative discipline system here. So someone, we have to accept responsibility and we need to do that so that we can make things as right as possible. But we can't do that unless someone accepts responsibility. So then the boys admitted that they'd done it. She called a meeting with all people involved or affected by the incident. So that was the boys, their parents, and the custodian. They talked about what happened and everyone present at the meeting had a voice. In that process, the custodian had a chance to let the students know how difficult it is to replace a dispenser. She said, it actually gave the students incredible knowledge of a real world situation in a way that suspension never could. And relationships improved instead of being damaged. Now, one of the students couldn't even afford to replace a dispenser, so guess what they did? They suggested themselves that they could work with the custodian to pay their debt. And turns out that this young king enjoyed it so much, that he continued to help the custodian long after he paid restitution. Now I had thought about this and I'm not sure if you have, but it is a question that has been asked. Does restorative justice address racial justice? Now y'all know I'm not gonna leave that subject out. Come on now, I'm an African-American woman. Now, so to quote the Oakland Unified School District, quote, there is no restorative justice without racial justice, unquote. So let's remember, beautiful people, I mentioned earlier that the Maori were noted with being the indigenous community who is at the root of this practice and they established it centuries ago. And we need to make sure that the participants in this process are encouraged to remember how racial privilege and prejudice affect them all. Now the Center for Court Innovation runs restorative justice programs in five underserved Brooklyn schools. Shout out to Brooklyn. They want to address the subject through a racial justice lens. Remember that restorative justice is about accountability and repairing harm. Okay. So a good question would be, what about accountability? You know, what about accountability for the system that has produced these underserved and essentially segregated schools and then it turns around and punishes the kids for reacting to that neglect. What about that? huh? What about that? So in other words, schools must address racist policies and practices along with restorative justice efforts. The reason why I love that example, to be quite honest, is that people who are proponents of restorative justice don't want to give you the impression that restorative justice alone is what works. It can work in more simplified cases, but in something that could be a little bit more complicated, it can work in conjunction or in combination with something else, but that it's there. It exists because It doesn't want to cause harm, it wants to heal. So that's the premise. And that's why it can exist, excuse me, in schools, at home, and in our criminal justice system, right? Now, they can use the system, right? To help historically privileged, or as we learned last week, students with immunity, and if you don't know, again, what I'm referring to, then you need to check out last week's episode to make amends to the victims of long-standing prejudices. Now, they do admit that this is a tricky topic and a fairly new one. So you see, some people think that the old school is whack, but I see more than ever that what it is, <laughs> what's, what's indeed whack is an inability to see how significant a role that the so called old school, in this case, our Indigenous brothers and sisters, had in shaping the ideas that we as people today are beginning to utilize as we look for ways to come to solutions that are equitable for everyone who has a seat at the table and to have a willingness to make room for those who we must provide seats for at said table so that we can continue to evolve because that's the thing people we are constantly doing constantly growing and hopefully we are becoming better and better as we learn more and more individually and hopefully as a village see what I did there That was True Colors by Cindy Lauper, which was from her second studio album. Upon its release, the album received generally positive reviews from music critics. I've always loved that song. And I know that it's been sung by other people, but she just sings it in a way that actually gets to me. Now, the album earned Lauper several awards and accolades, including two nominations at the 29th Annual Grammy Awards, Two Colors, it peaked at number four on the Billboard 200 chart. The album is Lauper's second best-selling release with around 7 million copies worldwide. Okay, Village, it's time for this week's inspirational story. And the name of the story is called Start With Yourself. Okay, so the following words were written on the tomb of an angelic, um, uh bishop in the crypts of Westminster Abbey. An angelic, excuse me, an angelic bishop, thank you. I had to correct myself. In the crypts of Westminster Abbey. And here's what it says. When I was young and free and my imagination had no limits, I dreamed of changing the world. As I grew older and wiser, I discovered the world would not change, though so I shortened my sights somewhat and decided to change only my country, but it too seemed immovable. As I grew into my twilight years, in one last desperate attempt, I settled for changing only my family, you know, those closest to me, but alas, they would have none of it. And now, as I lie on my deathbed, I suddenly realize if I had only changed my life first, then by example, I would have changed my family. From their inspiration, he says, and their encouragement, I would then have been able to better my country. And who knows, I may have even changed the world. Now, kings and queens, there is no moral for this story, and I believe that it's done on purpose to give us the opportunity to draw our own conclusions, right? There are some things in the story that I agree with and some things that I see just a little differently. When I was younger, for instance, I didn't have any desire or ambition to change the world, so to speak. I lived life day by day, and if that meant getting up in the morning to go to school and then a little later on to get up and go to work, that is what I did. I have worked in hospitality, property management, and as a senior case manager for a back to work program. And in all, if not, yeah, in all of them, no matter what the position, I always strive to be the best that I could be. Now, if you recall, there was a time when I did consider becoming an attorney, becoming a lawyer, but I determined that it would not make me happy, right? But in all those experiences and in all the experiences in between, I do not ever think that I aspired to change the world. There was no real sense of where I was going, you know, but in 2018, when I received my purpose through prayer and meditation, it changed everything for me because now I know why I'm here and each day I'm working toward that end, right? I do think he is right about this. You do need to start with yourself. When you are talking about change, you need to start with yourself because we can be so quick to point fingers at others, blaming them for our discontent. But in actuality, we need some time. We need to do some serious self-reflecting. I love that word. And I believe that people need to do it more because oftentimes if you're being honest about things. You will be able to see how you have also contributed to the chaos in your life. And things may not seem so one-sided after all, but you have to be willing to be honest with yourself first. Also with self-reflection and like what I like to call the inside job, which is to say the work that you need to do on you. All the things that you've been looking for in other people, you will discover that you need to see those things in yourself first, once you do. Once you do, you're not going to require them from anyone else. And I'm not saying that in like a mean way, obnoxious or arrogant kind of a way, but I'm saying because you're already fulfilled and you're already fulfilled, you already know things for yourself, you're not going to be looking for your value in someone else. You're not going to be looking for acceptance. You're not going to be looking for approval from anyone because your value is already going to be within you. You're going to understand that already. You're going to accept who you are as a person and approve of the person that you are and that you're continuing to become. Now, the desire to destigmatize mental illness so that we can normalize conversations around mental illness and learn how to care for ourselves, improving our mental health. If I can help or inspire or encourage one person, one person, then I am happy Remember, the only person that you can control is you. And if what you're doing gets noticed by friends, family, your community, or heck, even in the world, that's great. But don't do it for anyone else but yourself. And the rest will fall into place. The people in your orbit that are really for you will be revealed to you. And because you are not doing things for their sake, whether they are for you or whether they are not, It will not stop you from making the change that you're looking to make. You dig? Now, this is a seven studio album by this English singer-songwriter and it was first released in 1973 as a double LP. The album has sold more than 30 million copies worldwide and is widely regarded as the singer's magnum opus. Originally, the album was to be recorded in Jamaica, but there were problems with the recording, and so it was moved to France. The move actually provided a great deal of creative inspiration and an abundance of quality material was produced the album was inducted into the grammy hall of fame in 2003 when it was also included in the book 1001 albums you must hear before you die (laughs) now in 2020 the album ranked 112 on rolling stone magazine's list of 500 greatest albums of all time the album was inducted um as I said before, into the hall of fame in 2003. So it actually did very, very well. So it had songs on there like Candle in the Wind, Benny and the Jets, Saturday Nights All Right for Fighting, as well as this song, right? Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road, excuse me, by Sir Elton John. was English singer Ja Day, from their second studio album, Promise. It was released on October 12, 1985, as the album's lead single. While the song peaked at number 31 on the UK singles chart, it fared considerably better in the US, where it reached number five on the Billboard Hot 100 in March 1986, remaining in the top 40 for 13 weeks. It also became the band's second consecutive number one single on the Billboard adult contemporary chart following Smooth Operator. Now, Shale sings proudly and boldly about how she is given love, which brings out the best in her. The quiet storm vibe allows one to stand and groove dance to the soulful, peaceful sound of the song. Well, kings and queens, we have come to the end of another show. I do hope that the information provided will be of help to you. And remember, it is always a good idea. I always encourage you guys to do your own research, no matter what the topic, especially if your life is involved. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining me here in the village, for tuning in for another episode. And I'm looking forward to seeing you all again next Wednesday evening, at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please be sure to follow Village Mentality at Instagram at villagementality.ckm, as in Mary, and on Facebook at Village Mentality, the podcast. You can catch all episodes of Village Mentality on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Radio Public, and Breaker. Now there's a link that's available on Instagram and Facebook that you can catch as well. Also, you can check out Village Mentality on theawakenlounge.com backslash uh, village hyphen mentality. Okay, so you got all that? And just remember, Village, that God has got me and he's got you too. Be blessed, beautiful people. And here's to brighter days.
1: So stale yeah. the
0: air Everybody's running scared We used to be so carefree we Used to be so happy Used to have everything we need